Hey everyone, this is Josh, host of the Urban Valor Podcast. Today's guest is Navy veteran Luis Fonseca Jr. Luis grew up a military baby and was raised mostly in Fayetteville, North Carolina. He got into drug trafficking at a young age and was inspired to join the military after one of his buddies was murdered on a drug deal that Luis was supposed to be at. Luis wanted to be in the medical field and enlisted into the Navy as a corpsman. He was assigned to a Marine Corps unit and deployed to Iraq for Operation Iraqi Freedom in March of 2003. He shares his experience and his actions in the Battle of Nazaria, which made him the first Navy corpsman to receive the Navy Cross since the Vietnam War. Luis also shares the demons he faces after enduring heavy trauma and transitioning out of the military. If you enjoy this episode, go give us a five-star rating and leave a comment to help support our veterans. The bigger the community, the bigger the impact. If you'd like to contribute your story to Urban Valor or know anyone else who may, reach out on Instagram at Urban Valor TV, or you could email me at josh at Urban valor.com enjoy the show greetings my name is luis e fonseca jr i was a united states navy corpsman for 22 years i enlisted on july 12th of 1999 i retired on june 30th of 2021 and i retired as an e6 hm1 i call Fayetteville, north carolina home that's where my dad retired when he was in the army my upbringing was kind of everywhere but I was mainly raised in the South. My fondest memories are being raised in Alabama. And then from there, dad got stationed back in Germany. And then after Germany, he got stationed in North Carolina, where he eventually retired out of. I was actually born in Germany, even though my dad was in the army. A cool little thing about, about that is back in 1980, uh, when my dad was stationed in Germany, there was a law that any child born abroad to a service member, their family member, their parent, had to at least be 10 years of an American citizen. And neither one of my parents were at that time. So I was actually born a German citizen and a Mexican citizen, and then become an American citizen until I was eight years old. Honestly, what inspired me to join was being in a bad situation. My dad being that he was an army guy for 22 years, and he dealt with his own demons, you know, with alcoholism. And, and now where I'm at in my life, I, I've grown to understand who he was at that time learning that he was doing the best that he could with the tools he was given to him. I hold no grudges against my dad, but, you know, I had no desire on joining the military because I saw what he was, you know, and I just didn't want to be that that military person for my children. But just unfortunately, when I hit my high school years and, and living in Fayetteville, North Carolina, I just got involved with the wrong crew. Saw that making fast money was a lot more intriguing than going to class for eight hours a day to hopefully make as much money as I was making in a month, right? And making a year after I graduated high school or college or whatever. My intent at that time before I even decided to join the military was to go into the medical profession. I wanted UNC Chapel Hill was my dream college to go to for school. I had an opportunity, but I blew it, like I said, my senior year when I decided to drop out of high school and pursue fast money. You know, where we live at in Fayetteville, North Carolina, there's New York City's eight hours to the north and Miami's eight hours to the south. So Fayetteville, North Carolina runs on the I-95 and it's a perfect middle stop for any drug runners running north or south. And I just found a way to make myself the middleman to loosen the liability from the south and from the north and also get paid for it and, and did that for a while until the guy I was doing that with ended up getting murdered. And I was, I was supposed to go to pick up merchandise with them at that evening. But for whatever reason, my girlfriend at that time, you know, asked me not to go and he went and just unfortunately never came back home. And so I want to say it was three or four days after that, 
I ran to the recruiter's office and I was already a high school dropout. So I figured who would take a high school dropout and being raised by an army dad, uh, you know, you hear the inner service, you know, jokes. And I was like, well, the Marine Corps could always use, you know, someone to soak up bullets. You know, they'll take an idiot like me. So I initially went to the Marine Corps recruiter's office, but I knew I wanted to be in the medical profession. So I asked them, I said, hey, I really need to just get out of Fayetteville, North Carolina, but I want to be in the medical profession. What do you have for me? And that's when I found out the Marine Corps didn't have a medical field. Gave me a bunch of pamphlets to look over, said I scored really high. I could basically do whatever I wanted in the Marine Corps, um, think it over and come back to them tomorrow. And as I was walking out, because it was a recruiting center, so we had all the branches there, the Navy recruiter was standing outside, him and, and another buddy of his. He asked me what the Marine offered me, and I told him, you know, unfortunately, nothing that I really want, but I have all these pamphlets. And that's when they asked me, like, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to be with the Marines, but I want to be a field medic. I never knew what a hospital corpsman was, being raised by an Army soldier, an Army dad, right? And they're like, okay. And they're like, well, if we can get you that job, would you enlist in the Navy right now? And I didn't realize. I was like, okay, how can you do that? And so they put me into the office, and, and that's the first time I ever heard of what a hospital corpsman was. Even till the day I went into boot camp, I really didn't know what a hospital corpsman title was. I was still telling people I was going to go to the Navy to be a medic. So that's how I ended up in the Navy, being a, a Navy corpsman with the Marines. A basic training in the Navy back in 1999. The yelling and the screaming really didn't bother me. Go through the motions, keep your mouth shut. Uh, you don't want to be visible either for good things or bad things, you know, all that stuff I was told. But, you know, Navy boot camp compared to now that I've learned what Army boot camp is, Marine Corps boot camp and uh, other services. I'm not going to sit here and, and BS and act like, you know, it's Navy SEAL buds training. It's not, you know, I, um, it, it, it takes minimal effort to get through. I think that way about any boot camp, um, the Marine Corps, obviously a little bit more harder physically, but, uh, you know, it's shut up, follow the rules, you know, and, and march as you're told and, and you'll be just fine. So for me, boot camp was not uh, uh, hard at all. As a matter of fact, I went in as an E1, as a high school dropout. I, I think I came in with five waivers in total for uh, multiple drug charges, uh, high school dropout, drug use, things like that. So I was actually very fortunate to even get a Corman contract because one of the waivers uh, was, you know, you're asking to go work with medications. How do we know you're not going to steal them or dispense them properly or, or this or that? Uh, graduate boot camp as a, as an E2, actually, I was a military promoted in boot camp and I was, uh, what we call a Navy boot camp, the PFC, the personal flag carrier. So we have a guide on that has the, the division number. And then you have your personal flag carrier, who's the one that your boot camp class kind of designs. I don't even know if it's done anymore. They design their own personal flag for that company. And so I was the one that was, uh, authorized to carry that in the Navy profession for, especially for our army guys and gals, uh, and air force, you know, uh, they are very specifically trained. So they'll go to medic school and if they're going to be a field medic or, a uh, x-ray tech or, or whatever. That's their, basically their job. From my understanding, the rest of their career, and it's really hard for them to, to move anywhere. In the Navy, we have a basic general corpsman. We call them quad zeros. And they can be stationed just about anywhere that doesn't need a specialty. Even then, like, let's say we need a, a corpsman to work in the pharmacy. There'll be a pharmacy technician that oversees them, but we allow that junior corpsman that didn't go to pharmacy tech school to work there. For me to go work with the Marines, I had to go to field medical service school, which now is called uh, field medical service battalion. 
no, Field Medical Training Battalion, FMTB. Back then, it was Field Medical Service School, and I went to Camp Johnson, North Carolina, uh, for my C school there, which trained me to be a, a, what we called back then an 8404. So yeah, right after my C school, I went over to 2nd Marine Division, 2nd Tracks, and that's where my Navy career started. Honestly, it was, it was kind of everything I expected it to be. At, at that time, it was still very much, you had to prove yourself and earn that title of doc. And I'm not taking away anything from the young corpsmen today. I think people that came before me have helped solidify the title of doc as a Navy corpsman, right? But back in 99 and 2000, it was, you, you know, you had to do field ops first. You, you had to get your FMF ribbon. We didn't have a pin at that time before you really got the title of doc. Now, would a young private call you doc right off the streets? Absolutely. But to get the title of doc from your gunny or your first sergeant, you know, that, that took pride and that took time and effort. I grabbed my SIF gear, you know, which is our, our combat gear, whatever you want to call it, our, our, our load packs, all that. I got that the first week I was there. And, and on day seven at, on the fleet, I was out operating as a corpsman all by myself. Um, and that was definitely the most terrifying. And, and, you know, you're like, how can that be the most terrifying? I was like, you've been to combat. Uh, but it was because I was really the first time where I was charge of the healthcare and, and whatever happened out in the field and, and all those scenarios run through you, right? Like we're working with big, heavy mechanized equipment and you hear the stories about Marines getting run over by AAVs because someone didn't do checks. You hear heat casualties, this and, and, and it is for me at that time was very scary to be like, man, I'm, I'm the one that really is in charge of this and, and being a young E2, you know, having to go to staff NCOs and be like, Hey, we need to either call this field op or, or I need to medevac this, this Marine, you know, for a young 19 year old punk kid like myself that I was raised to never think I was going to amount to anything. I was going to grow up to be a mediocre, worthless nothing because I, I was showing that to people, right? Through my actions. It was really scary, but at the same time, but I had such great instructors that made us understand. I think our class, that time frame, a lot of us understood, you know, what it was to become a corpsman, even though we didn't know war was over the horizon. You know, the Marines will test you. Uh, they, they will test your knowledge. They'll test your, your skill set. They'll test your, your nerves. You know, I, I jokingly talk now, like when I was in high school, I used to think I used to run around with some of the baddest men or kids, you know, that would take anyone out just because they don't care about life, you know, but after you get accepted by your Marines as a corpsman, as one of them, as doc, and some of them will tell you, man, Doc's more of a fucking Marine than, than, than a Navy corpsman or a sailor. That's pride, man. That's, that's a, you know, those people that I thought you could count on for the rest of your life when you're a teenager, right? Because you're out doing stupid shit. When you really find men and women that you can literally call up today and say, I need you here tonight. And you know that 90% of them Financially, they'll, if they can, they're, they're on the plane or driving here, right? Picking up brothers and sisters along the way. Hey, doc needs us. And that's a feeling unlike anything that I've ever experienced. So I never got, you know, like hit with the rank or when I got finally the FMF pin came out, I never got it stabbed into my chest. But I know that if it would have happened to me, I would have been the dude like, dude, don't fucking hit me, man. Like I'm that guy. Like you don't touch me unless, you know what I mean? And, and to me, those ceremonies were always, like, why do we do that? I don't consider hazing either. Like, if you want to go through it, hey, by all means, go through it. It's 
it is what it is. But it wasn't my style. So I never got any of that. What I did end up getting though was I did go through corporal's course. So when we got blood striped, I did get that. And then my Marines. So in the Amtrak, there's hatches uh, on top that open up. Well, those hatches have uh, like a rope and you use those to either pull it down or there's another one that unlocks it. And so you get your hands in there and you wind them up and you're you do pull-ups, right? Well, then your Marines come in there and start, you know, beating you up a little bit. But as far as testing me and my my skill set, like, you know, I've had gunnies that were, had their Marines put Alka-Seltzer in their mouth and be like, ah, he's going into a seizure. And I'll walk up to him like, no, he's not. Like, let's not be idiots, gentlemen. You know, like, don't waste my time. I'm not here to waste y'all's. And I think very on, a lot of leadership saw that in me. Even though I was a knucklehead, I was getting in trouble, you know, NJPs. Uh, my corpsman skill set and my my nerves were on, on point. You know, September 11th of 2001, I was actually on leave and I had just taken my oldest son, who's now 27, to uh, first grade. He was in first grade and then my second oldest was still uh, an infant. So about a month prior to that, I was down in... um with Special Operations Training Group, a Marine unit down in uh, South America, um, just doing some training. I was augmented to that unit because uh, I spoke Spanish. Came home from that, and then, like I said, I was on leave. I was already back home from dropping my son off and laying in, 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 on the couch and falling back asleep when my phone goes off, and it was my mom. And she was like, hey, mijo, what's going on You know, in New York? I'm like, what are you talking about? So I don't remember if I saw any of the planes hit, um, I remember turning on the TV and I remember either one of the towers were already on fire, or both of them. Um, but I did remember seeing at least one of them collapse. I think maybe both collapsed at the same time. But why is it not so engraved in my brain? I mean, I have five TBIs, I forget things. <laughs> but you know, I, I do remember that. And I remember telling my mom, I was like, I don't know mom, but let me call my command and see what's going on. So I hung up the phone and, and called Chief at that time, Chief Lowry. And I was like, hey, Chief, what? What's going on? And, and do, you, do, you, do you need me to come back in from leave? And he said, no, Fonseca, just stay home for right now. Uh, we do know that the World Trade Center was attacked. We don't know any specifics, but just stand by. And, you know, for the next year and a half, we stood by to stand by, right? Definitely was a turning point for me because I wouldn't say 9-11 specifically, but going into combat with my brothers that I trained with after 9-11, was definitely the point that I saw the Navy becoming a career. At first, it was just a, an avenue to get out of Fayetteville, North Carolina, do my four or five years, get out, and then, you know, go on with life. But uh, after 9-11 and uh, March 23rd of 2003 was, it's kind of solidified that I knew I was going to try to make it a career. I don't brag about myself much at all, but I, I have always bragged about myself corpsman skill set. I've always been very proud of that. I've always tried to to have the best skill set possible. I've always, I never wanted to ever go to bed wondering, did someone not make it or did someone lose a limb or something? Because I was too proud to have asked, you know, hey, how do we properly do this? How does this go out? You know, put me through this training. I want to learn this. I want to really be effective at this, right? But the biggest lesson I ever learned was as Definitely on that first field op. When you talk about life lessons and, and, and what your Marines or great leaders teach you, Michael Bitts, rest his soul, he, he, he paid the ultimate sacrifice on March 23rd of 2003, was awarded the silver star for his actions. 
But on that first field up, and you're talking about in 2000, like I said, no premonition of a war in the horizons. That first field up with AEVs, you have at halt checks. So that's where the VIX stop and you either have a short one or a long one. Short ones are about 10 minutes. A long one, I mean, you're pulling out air packs, you're pulling out filters, you're, you know, you're, te- you're doing a, a big intensive check. Sergeant Bits, it's like, hey, doc, come on. I was writing in his track. It's like, hey, come up here, help me open up the plenum. The plenum of, a, of an AEV is kind of like the hood of your car. So we open up the plenum. He jumps into the engine compartment. I'm just kind of standing up there looking around and I hear him tinkering a little bit. And then all of a sudden he goes, hey, what are you doing up there? I was like, oh, sorry, I'm just waiting for you guys to be done. He's like, get a, get in here. I was like, for what? He was like, you need to learn this. So when we talk about the first week of getting into in, into the fleet, right? And you listen sometimes to some of those dumbass leaders. I had a HM3 that told me when I was getting ready to go to the field for the first time, goes, hey, the Marines are going to tell you to do this, do that, do this. But you tell them, no, that's not my job. I'm a Navy corpsman. I don't do that. So me being a boot, first field op, listen to this you know, E4 that told me, hey, this is how we operate. When Sergeant Biss like, hey, come on down here and learn this. I was like, no, that's not my job. I'm a Navy corpsman. I don't. He jumped up on that AV so quick and with the sternness in his face and, and voice, just looked at me dead in the eye and said, doc, don't ever say that. And I was like, what, Sergeant? He's like, don't ever say it's not your job. He goes, you never know when the time might come that you need to work on this Vic to pull your brothers out of danger. I'm like, whatever, right? But I went down there and I learned. I learned everything about the AV. I was one of the first corpsmen in that unit, from my understanding, in a long time to have an Amtrak driver's license as a corpsman, you know? That's how much I showed to my Marines that I want to learn about their job and their trade and vice versa. They would ask me about corpsman stuff. And lo and behold, three years later, on March 23rd, 2003, that premonition or saying or whatever Michael Bitts saw, right? Or just him being a freaking true leader knew came true and and it was a moment that on march 23rd of 2003 that a lot of my marines were too busy trying to gain superiority a lot of them were already injured or wounded or kia and it took yeah a navy guy to to jump in one of those dicks and 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 get the wounded the help that they needed so I wasn't even supposed to be in Iraq, believe it or not. In November of 2001, I had gotten promoted to E-4. In the Navy, we call it a frocking. So by that time, I'd already made a name for myself in the battalion. I'd been NJP'd once already. So my first NJP was for underage drinking in the barracks. And it was, you know, dude, like, it's Friday. Everyone's in the barracks getting drunk. I'm in the barracks getting drunk. I'm on the balcony on my cell phone. I just got a cell phone. My ex-wife at that time was stationed out here in California. I was stationed in Camp Lejeune. The OD's walking around making rounds and I'm not thinking anything of it because I'm on the balcony talking with my fiance at that time, not making a ruckus. And uh, Gunny, you know, is walking around, checking IDs, blah, blah, talking to anyone. And he comes up to me, he's like, hey doc, he's like, what you up to? I was like, none, just talking to my fiance. Gunny goes, okay, he goes, have you been drinking? And I'm like, excuse me? He goes, don't forget, Doc, honesty is always the best policy. So I was like, well, yeah, Gunny, I had a couple of beers, but I'm just right here. He goes, oh, good to go. And then he writes in the logbook. Next day, I'm on Monday, I'm having to explain why at 19, I'm 
So, you know, I was really honest with it, you know, with my leadership. I said, yeah, I was in the barracks. I was having a couple of beers and like everyone else does. But I wasn't the one making a ruckus. I was in, in the logbook. It showed like, yeah, Doc Fonseca, H.A. Fonseca, you know, was caught on the balcony. He said, caught on the balcony drinking. I was like, no, I told him I was when he asked. So my punishment at that time wasn't too bad. I had like 14 days restriction, you know, because the captain was like, hey, doc, you were honest, blah, blah, you were making a ruckus. Coming from where I grew up with a dad that, you know, never thought I, I, nothing was ever good enough for him, right? So no matter what I accomplished, no matter what I did, it was, he'd always find the, the mistake. Something at that time just clicked in me like, see, it's the same here. It's the same here. Even if you're honest, even if you tell them, hey, this is going on, you're still going to get reprimanded. You're still going to get told you're a piece of shit or you're this, just like my dad did. So at that time is when I just started keeping secrets. And I, I grew up, Jacksonville, North Carolina is all of an hour and a half, two hours away from Fava, North Carolina. I, I would go back there almost every other weekend, once a month. And so even though I never got caught in my military career doing any stupid stuff besides drinking, those little things that the command would hear that they were like, we're gonna catch you one day, we're gonna catch you. My Sergeant Major, I don't know why, just gravitated to me, to me Sergeant Major Bruce Poland. <laughs> oh my gosh, one of the worst leaders I ever had, if not the worst. Would literally, every time he saw me, would tell me how he was gonna kill me, um, how if we go on a field op, he's gonna uh, get a Marine to kill me. And then when we found out that we were getting ready to to launch over to, to Kuwait, I was on restriction at that time. That was my second NGP. And that time I had gone to DUI. Friday, we got frocked to E4. Saturday, I was out celebrating with my Navy Corpsman buddies. I was the one that got busted drinking and driving. So Monday morning, I was in front of Sergeant Major Poland and, and Colonel uh, Butler explaining my actions why a, a new E4 is getting a DUI. So I literally went from Friday being an E4 to Monday being an E2 and then being put on 60 days restriction uh, because they wanted to make an example, you know, and, and they finally had something on me. For anyone watching, I don't, I don't blame the Navy. I don't blame the Marine Corps. I don't even blame Colonel Butler. He had to do a job and I screwed up and I had to pay for it. And I think that's one of the things a lot of leaderships always saw on me was I never blamed anyone else. You know, even when they're like, oh, you've been drinking this, this and that. And, you know, I would always tell them like, yeah, but don't blame it on the alcohol because I soberly woke up that day already telling myself I'm going to get wasted today. So it was a sober decision that I knew I was going to get wasted and whatever happened when I was wasted happened. I didn't care. So I never put the blame on anyone. But there was a couple of friends stationed in the unit too that were from the favor North Carolina area and had heard about, you know, my reputation and, um, and he just got back to the command. So they had heard the rumors that I was still running drugs. A couple of times I was like coming in to work on a Monday, you know, from running, you know, from New York and they could tell. But really that stuff kind of stopped after the first year. And from that point on, it was really just my drinking. I wasn't much of a drinker before the Navy because of how I saw my dad was, but I enjoyed pot a lot. I smoked a lot of weed before the Navy. So after joining the Navy, it was like, you know, you can't really smoke pot because it stays in your system too long. So I dove into alcohol to, I guess, run away from whatever generational trauma, if you want to call it that way, that I was dealing with at that time. And then having a sergeant major that just every time pounded on me just for what I felt was one mistake, which was my underage drinking, but I was honest about it and just pounded on me about that. And I mean, when you get told you're a piece of shit, almost on a weekly basis by your sergeant major, you know, and you're like, but damn, I'm trying to do the best that I can. You, you eventually give up trying to impress anyone. And that's where it just got to. 
And that's where I just said, you know what, I'm going to do my Navy career the whatever way I want to do it. And and if I stay in for 20 plus years, I do. And if I don't, I don't. It, it really came to a point where I just didn't care anymore about impressing leadership. All I cared about was my skill set and if it ever came down to perform that skill set. So, you know, going into Iraq to lead up in there, you know, I was on restriction. I was on day 54 when we embarked on the USS Ponce to go over to to Kuwait. So I would jokingly tell my junior sailors that my first DUI in the Navy really cost me seven months of liberty because I was on restriction for 54 days and then another five more months in Iraq, right? Before I got to be home with the family. I only cared about what my Marines and my platoon cared about me. I remember even the Sergeant Major when he told me, you know, we're getting ready to go to uh, Iraq. He goes, and if I catch you out there, I'll, uh, I'm going to kill you myself and I'll have a Marine bury you. I remember thinking in my head, I was like, man, I said, I hope I'm next to you when you get fucking shot because I'm going to just sit there and laugh at you and I'll gladly go to the brig for it. Um, <laughs> that's how much this fight I had for leadership at that time because of that one person. But it was really Gunny Myers, my platoon sergeant and Lieutenant Tracy Connor, uh, my our platoon commander, that really changed my outlook on leadership. You know, when we we're getting ready to go out of Iraq, a lot of battalions didn't want me. A lot of units were like, no, he's too much of a of a liability, too much of a headache. Gunny Myers and Lieutenant Connor absolutely were like, yeah, we'll take him with us 100%. Like I said, I wasn't even supposed to be with that unit in Iraq because of that DUI in November of 2002. I was actually supposed to go on the 24th Mew with that AV company. And uh, I got taken off of it because I got thrown in jail. I had kept it a secret from the command. And then like a month later, it caught up to me and Gunny Sanborn pulls me in the office like, Doc, what's this? Why do I have a sheriff saying that you wanted on a warrant for blah, blah, blah? I was like, oh, crap. So yeah, he took me to Oslo County Sheriff's Office. The morning we're supposed to go on the Mew and uh, I got taken off of it. A, a grunt corpsman had to take my place. And so that's how I ended up being in, in Iraq in 2003 in the Battle of Mount Azaria. So if it wasn't for me being NJP'd, I would have been on the 24th Mew and, and I wouldn't have been there with, with my guys to, for that day. March 23rd of 2003, the Battle of Mount Azaria, which infamously became known as Ambush Alley. You can use any word that you want to try to describe, but they're, they're, they're just, uh, not that I know of. I mean, I woke up that morning, me, Sergeant Epinet, Lance Corporal Taylor woke up that morning in, in the back of Gunny's bit. I remember Taylor and I sharing a cigarette and looking at each other. And I don't know who said it first, but I remember one of us saying something along the lines like, if this is what war is like, I could do this every day. Not knowing that in the next two hours, the gates of hell were going to open up on us. And started pushing north, getting to the outskirts of Al-Nazaria. You, you could see the smoke you know, in the city. You could see the helos flying in to soften up the targets. For our viewers that aren't aware, when, when we talk about the tip of the spear uh, of any element going into an, uh, an offensive push, you really talk about your tanks, your armored division, your helos. They go soften up the targets and then we go in and, and the grunts and all that kind of do a sweet cleanup mission, pick up what's left, kind of left over. So I remember sitting on the outskirts of the city and for those that might uh, remember, um, March 23rd of 2003 was also the day that the army convoy got lost. Well, our tip of the spear got diverted to go try to help them out. And the word came over the, the radio that our mission was to go 
seize and secure the, the Northern Bridge on Al-Nazaria, which is the Saddam Canal Bridge. And I remember hearing over the radio our lead Vic calling back to Gunny and saying, hey, Taz, did I hear that correctly? Are we still pushing forward? I think any great company, Gunny, any great Gunny knows how to always show professionalism and be stoic, you know, when they make their 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 decision on, on what we're going to do, right? But it was the first time I ever heard, if, even if you want to call it a slight hesitation of, of Gunny Myers, David Myers is kind of taking a breath, I would say, and then telling us, yeah, that's our mission, push forward, do as, as we're told. I remember even getting into Nazaria when we first made direct contact, it was all small arms fire, machine gun fire, uh, AK-47 fire. And even though our AAVs are, didn't have the EEC armor, which is the, if you ever look at a, uh, at a picture of an amphibious assault vehicle and, and Google like amphibious assault vehicle with armor, it's kind of like a wavy armor, uh, that's called EEC armor. We didn't have those because the mute took it, right? We weren't expecting to go into combat. So we didn't have that. But even rounds still bounce off of the skin of, of the AV. So I remember kind of laughing inside, like, oh my gosh, what are they doing? Right. But when it really got, real was when I heard the code word and I forgot what it was now talking about center lane, center lane, center lane. And then all of a sudden the vehicle verts off to the right and back up onto the uh, road was it was an RPG that was shot at our Vic. That's when I was like, holy crap. And then at that time is when the mortar rounds started coming in, the artillery fire started coming in and uh, Gunny Myers gets on the horn and says, hey doc, you need to get out there and uh, 211's been hit. You got to go out there and see how you can help them out. I had my comm helmet on because in AV, it's so loud. You need to have a comm helmet to talk to your driver into the gunny. And I said, Roger that gunny. Uh, I'm on my way. I remember taking off my helmet, putting it in the little compartment that I always put it in. Grab my killer, strapping that on. Then grab my med bag. I remember opening that hatch. And the moment it takes for that hatch to swing open was all the time I had to think about my family. And then I remember my feet hitting the deck and that was it. It was like go time. Jumping out of the back of the Vic, I had to run around it before I even saw anything in front of me. And by the time I ran around the Vic, the only thing I could see was 211 totally engulfed in flames. So that already pinpointed. And, and I attest that to, to what people might consider bravery. I just say like, I was just so hyper-focused on that vehicle. You know, people like, oh, did you, did you hear rounds? Did you hear explosions landing next to you? Did you, you know, see them, you know, landing on the deck or in front of you or ricochets? I don't remember any of that. I don't. I, I, and maybe that's a good thing. I remember running up to the Vic, talking to Sergeant Beavers and, and him letting me know, hey, yeah, we got five casualties, amputations, flash burns, shrapnel wounds, jump in the Vic to pull them out, all five out with the help of my Marines get down into a ditch and just start applying tourniquets and, and battle dressings. I remember getting down into the ditch and looking at uh, Matthew Beavers and he's like, hey doc, what do you need us to do? And and I remember just ripping open my med bag. At that time we had the big Molly 5 bags. I mean, they were 80 pound bags. And just looking at the Marines and saying, anything you see bleeding, just start bandaging it up. I'll, I'll make it look pretty later. And I just focused on the two amputees and started addressing their wounds. The whole time, you know, from my understanding, we're getting strafed, we're getting hit, artillery, mortar rounds dropped on us. And then we also, unfortunately, have an A-10 war. We have two A-10 warhogs overhead 
that mistook us for enemy that just kept strafing us, strafing us, dropping 500 pound bombs on top of us that we had to fight against as well too. So Sergeant Beavers was really the one that was like, hey doc, we need to get out of here. And, you know, me being a corpsman, my first thought process, like, well, let me get him to the medevac vehicle. It's like, hey, let's get him over there. So get him into the AV. All five of the casualties are stabilized. Uh, I start, you know, give him morphine, start dressing some more wounds, start flushing out the eyes, do the flash burns, you know, other burns, things like that. When I'm in the VIC, I'm, I'm hearing everything going on outside. At that time, I'm, I'm hearing things going on outside. I remember uh, Gunny getting on the horn again. It's like, Doc, we just got bombarded by artillery. And I figured that's what it was because we just got bombarded. You need to get out there and see what's going on. So I look at uh, Sergeant Epinet and Taylor, Lance Corporal Taylor. I was like, hey, gents, I got to go. You guys got these five casualties. Like, yeah, Doc, we got them. So I look at the senior line corpsman, who was an HM3 at the time. I was just a young E2. And I'm like, hey, HM3, we got to go back out there. And he didn't go out with me the first time. And he looks at me and he's, no, no. I'm like, all right, fuck it. So I jump out the Vic by myself and I spend probably the next two, three hours running around the perimeter, uh, helping with multiple casualties, multiple uh, wounds, gunshot wounds, shrapnel wounds, explosion wounds, burns, taking down names, taking down grid coordinates of small little casualty collection points. So I knew where they were, everyone was at when I was ready to call in the birds or calling the medevac vehicles to come uh, pulling them out. On my way back to the Vic, I. I found the company commander and uh, the grunt company commander, not my company commander, but the grunt. And I remember telling him, hey, sir, these are all the casualties I have. This is what I'm reporting. I was actually looking for 206 as well as I heard that they got hit really hard, but I can't find them. And he was like, yeah, doc. He's like, um, just go back to the Vic and start calling in, you know, start calling in the birds. At that time, we had loaded up more casualties into an AV and I start running towards my Vic and the AV takes off down the road with casualties that we loaded up. And, uh, you know, you can read the reports. Uh, the official reports say that the AVs are at least known to have caused one KIA, but could have caused up to as many as 17. We lost 18 Marines on that day. Oh. So to know that 99%, and I don't care what official records say, when I saw my casualties loaded up on that Vic, and I saw that Vic head south, and I see an A-10 Warthog fly and hit that Vic, I don't care what official reports say, it wasn't an RPG. RPGs don't flay open an AAV like a sardine can. I survived an RPG hit to an AV. It doesn't happen that way. So unfortunately, that's where... um uh, Corporal Camouflage Chana Wangsi and, and, uh, Sergeant Bits, uh, got hit. That's where most of those are my two AV, uh, brothers that I still hold very dear to this day. Um, and then the other Grunt Marines that we lost the majority of were in that Vic that got hit. Um, and that's part of where my PTSD came from was that survivor's guilt, knowing that I made the choice to, to load Marines into certain vehicles and tell Vicks to either push down south or stay in position. And knowing that one of those Vicks was hit by um, what I generally 100% to this day and probably the day I die will attest was hit by friendly enemy fire and our government doesn't want to take acknowledgement of that. Hurts me to this day. Kind of gained my bearings back and, and got into my Vic and relayed the message to Gunny and told him that that Vic had gone down and all the casualties I have. And when I was relaying that message to Gunny, that's when our vehicle started getting indirect and directly hit by mortar round fire. And we got hit 
three times by mortar rounds on the starboard side of the Vic. And it kept, you could tell they were walking it in. The first one hit just on the outside. The second one hit right on the shell. The third one hit right on the center beam. And I just knew that the fourth one was going to, we had the, the, the port hatch, the left side of the hatch open and knew that next round was just going to come in right in there. It was, and I was sitting right under it. I remember looking at Sergeant Epinel, who was right in the jump seat across from me. And we use hand signals because you can't hear in there. I remember just telling him, combat, drop the ramp, combat, drop the ramp. So he reaches over, grabs the red handle, pulls it. The ramp just collapses, drops. I start grabbing the first casualty, pulling him out. Sergeant Eppinich grabbing one as well, too. So we hear the fourth round come in. Ends up being an RPG round that hit the AV, lodged into the engine compartment. That's where it exploded. For those that don't know how an RPG works is, an RPG's two detonations. Three, if you want to think of it. The first one is what makes the RPG go, the propellant, right? The second one blows the skin of the vehicle in order for the grenade to go inside and then blow up again. What Gunny believes is that it didn't have enough rotations to arm both of the armaments. So the one that only armed was the one to pierce the Vic. And that's what blew up in the engine compartment. It was still a very loud explosion, very dark, very dusty, ringing in the ears. Cause I didn't have my comm helmet on. I had my Kevlar and I didn't have any earplugs. So a lot of ringing in the ears. Once the fog kind of cleared and I got my bearings again, I, I started pulling that uh, casualty back out, laid them out in a ditch, and we got the rest of the other four out of there. At that time, I, I uh, started looking for another vehicle to commandeer to get these casualties out. Finally found one on the road, and uh, you know I run on top of the road. And in war and then the chaos of all of that, you, you don't always make the smartest decision. But I remember running up to that Vic, and uh, I'm waving my arms like I'm running in the middle of a road in, in an ambush, waving my arms, like probably making myself the biggest target besides a vehicle. Right. <laughs> and uh, you're supposed to run to the back of the vehicle. You're supposed to wave so the driver can see you. And then they're supposed to lower the ramp so you can jump in the back. Well, I did it. I run to the side of the vehicle and I climb on top of this Vic. So now I'm standing on top of a vehicle, right? 13 feet in the air. I take my Kevlar off and I'm banging on the hatch. Stan Sergeant Lafferby, who is, uh, he got commissioned later and retired as a captain. He was like, Stan Sergeant, he's like, Doc, what are you doing? Just get your ass inside. And I was like, no, Stan Sergeant, there's no time. I was like, follow me. And he's like, no, get inside. I was like, no, follow me. So I jump off the Vic and now I'm running down the street, center line, high, high point of a battlefield, right? With this AV tailing me to go pick up these casualties. So uh, we run down to the ditch. The AV follows me down there and we load up some of the casualties into that Vic and then to, to another Vic. So I ride down with uh, Staff Sergeant Lafferty down, you know, down south with my casualties that I have. And uh, we come to 28 uh, aid battalion and I start briefing them of all the casualties that we have that I'm aware of, the ones that, that are KA, the ones that are should be coming down in Vicks. They would do a nice smooth transition handoff, took all of about 10 minutes, I would say. And um, Staff Sergeant's like, you could tell he was shocked. You know, he was like, Doc, this isn't the way it's supposed to go. Corporal Camafun was his, uh, his Marine. And he had already knew that, that Chuck had gotten, we called him Chuck. He had already knew Chuck had gotten hit. So he took that really hard. Um, I remember just looking at him and grabbing him by the arm and saying, Staff Sergeant, I said, right now is not the time, brother. I need you to take me back up there. And he goes, you're right. You're right. It was a moment in chaos where 
I saw humanity. I didn't see a weak person. I saw a man crying for the loss of one of his young Marines. And so I just told him, I said, right now is not the time, Staff Sergeant. I need you to get me back up there. And he understood, and he wiped the tears away. I wiped my tears away, and uh, we loaded back up and, and headed back into the fight. By the time we got back up there, I was gone maybe about 20 minutes. The major firefighting had stopped. There was still some sporadic fire within the city, but the major firefighting had stopped. I remember getting back into the fight, uh, the ramp dropping in order for me to go look, look more casualties. I walk off the ramp with my med bag, my side pistol. The first person I see is Gunny Myers. And he gives me a big hug and he's like, you did a good job, Marine. I was like, what? And I was like, thanks, Gunny. And it took me by surprise. I didn't say nothing of it. I didn't mention nothing to him about him calling me a Marine or anything. I said, all right, Gunny, let me get on the radio with the, with the radio operator and we'll start calling in these medevacs. That day that we woke up joking about combat turned into seven hours of us fighting for each other. I don't want to take away from anyone else that was in the Battle of Anazaria, but when we talk about the Battle of Anazaria and Ambush Alley, it was Charlie Company 1-2 and Alpha Company 1st uh, Platoon, which was my platoon that took the brunt of it, that took the major losses and casualties. Like I said, I don't take away from anyone else because, I mean, if 2-8 wasn't where they were at, I wouldn't have gotten my casualties. Is If Bravo Company wasn't where they were at, we wouldn't have secured the Southern Bridge. It's just unfortunate we took the brunt of it. And and yeah, I mean, we, we fought hard. We became combat ineffective. At that time, we went in with 12 vehicles. We came out with only four operational. We got told within 72 hours, if we don't get a certain amount of vehicles back up and running and replenish the, our, what we consider the front lines. It's, it sounds like old timing, you know, World War II, replenish the front lines. <laughs> but it was, it was, you know, we didn't get combat replacements from the rear within 72 hours. We were going to get pulled out of the war. And uh, I remember Gunny and Lieutenant Tracy, because I rode with Gunny's track, I remember them having those conversations and being a young E2, you're not very privileged to some of those conversations. But getting to be on the inside of it, watching these two men with other leadership come up with the decision of whether we're going to push forward or not. It's not like in the movies, like, oh, the whole unit got together and Gunny and Lieutenant were like, hey, gents, are we going to do this? And we all got together and said, yes, we're going to push forward for our brothers. No, it was, we're a conventional unit. We get told what to do by our leadership and we push forward. Being able to see them having to come to those decisions and conclusions gave me so much respect for, for what they do on the battlefield. When I got to the point where I was now instructing men or women to go outside the wire. It's uh, one of the greatest and most important responsibilities, I think, besides being a, a father, I think any person can have. When you become combat ineffective, at least what they did with us, I, I'm not sure about other units. It's the only unit I've ever been part of that was combat ineffective. You now have to start calling up the log train for resupply, replenishment. Uh, on March 23rd, what was it? On the 24th is when that big sandstorm came in. So the, the log train got bogged down, right? I think we were down to one MRE per two Marines and one bottle of water for every person a day. So we really just had to set up a defensive perimeter and then we had the recovery vehicles, a tank unit, an AV unit. They have these vehicles that are outfitted as like a mobile mechanical workshop and they can do just about anything. 
I mean, remove the engines and everything. So we call them up front and they bring supplies up from the front and start fixing as many vehicles as they can just so that they're operational. I mean, my vehicle that got hit with an RPG went the rest of the war with a big ass hole on the side of it. And we couldn't splash it back into the water and get it back on the ship. Obviously we got it. They had to get, you know, low board back or whatever. You lose so many percentage of your men. So you got to replenish those so you could have a certain amount of, uh, of men up front. From my understanding of combat ineffectiveness is just that you get taken out for a certain amount of time, get told, hey, you got to, you know, fix this and replenish this and get your your team back up to a certain level before you can go back in the fight. But we got told that um, that Gunny and Lieutenant uh, Connor, I, I wouldn't say it was a deal like, you know, we think of a handshake deal, but it was uh, leadership communicating, uh, said, Hey, give us 72 hours to get back on, on deck. That's what they came and told us. I mean, that's basically what happened. Like I said, I was in the Vic and I heard the whole conversations. I mean, it's basically what happened. They came out there and said, Hey, we're giving you guys 72 hours to get back up and ready if you want to go in the fight. I think there was just that silent understanding. No one high five. No one said, yeah. No one said, we're going to go get back revenge. It was like, Roger that. And everyone turned to and started making sure all of our equipment was ready to go with the next 72 hours. The crazy thing about it is I was awarded the Navy Cross for my actions that day, making me the first Navy corpsman since the Vietnam. It was 34 years at that time since the last corpsman was awarded the Navy Cross. And, you know, a lot of people, especially when you're the, the first one since Vietnam to be awarded that one, and then you subsequently end up becoming the only U.S. Navy sailor that is still currently alive that was awarded the Navy Cross during the whole Iraq war. The only other Navy sailor that was awarded the Navy Cross with the, was SO1 Keaton. Uh, he got his posthumously. So it's him and myself. I'm fortunately the one to be alive wearing it, right? So I understand when, when you put it in that context, you can say, Oh my gosh, Fonseca, you were the bravest one out there. I completely disagree with that because I was trained to do that. That was my training. My, I was, it was so embedded in me that a Navy corpsman runs through hell, through the gates of hell and back for their wounded Marines. But that's all I knew. That to me, it wasn't heroism. To me, that was my duty, my responsibility. The heroism that I saw was all those Marines that stood in the face of that fire, in the face of that enemy, that adversity, in the face of death, when I had my back to it and I could ignore it, I'll be honest, when I could ignore it, they stood there toe-to-toe -to -toe with it and said, nah, you're not taking down another one of my brothers. No. That's why I, I, I don't understand. I, 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 I don't understand how this award can be a, a single act award. Whether they were pulling the trigger on the finger, whether, whether they were running ammunition, where they, they were dropping mortars to, to suppress the enemy, where they were helping me carry casualties back to the Vic. I don't know if I would have had the guts to have done what my Marines did that day. I don't. And just like my Marines probably said the same thing about me, like, thought you're running around with only a nine millimeter pistol. Like, you're the crazy one. I'm like, nah, guys. Like, so, you know, what? I think it's just the perspective of it. You know, like I said, Sergeant Bits got awarded the Silver Star for running ammunition, you know, to grunt units. Uh, after his vehicle was disabled, he took the lead as a, as a grunt sergeant, not knowing, you know, as an Amtrak, right? But every Marine's a rifleman. Um, things like that, things like 
Corporal Chuck, knowing that he was also running ammunition to a machine gun, you know, he got hit. My Marines that I told, hey, run through the city and, and take these casualties with you, especially the one that didn't make it, you know, knowing that I had him go down that. And, and they, without question, did it. That to me is bravery. They, they trusted a 19-year-old punk fucking kid from Fayetteville, North Carolina to, to give them orders to take their brothers out of harm's way. To me, that's bravery. What I did was I just held a promise to my brothers and that as I was going to be there until the day I died. You know, we had a, another skirmisher uh, in Alcut at the hospital there. And, and that's a funny story because so after March 23rd of 2003, Gunny was really protective of, of me. I cannot leave Gunny's sight, you know, like, uh, and, and, and it felt good because, like I said, it, he was a father figure and I felt accepted. I felt loved and embraced by him and welcomed into his family, the Marine Corps family, right? But when at Al-Qut and there was an Army Special Forces unit already there and they were low on medical supplies. Well, since I'm in the AEVs and I have a big box of medical supplies, I asked, hey, what do y'all need? And they raided over what they needed. We had excess of it. So load some up. They come and pick me up in a, in a um, Jeep. And uh, they asked me and two other corpsmen, hey, do you guys want to go over to the hospital with us to take care of some casualties? We're like, yeah, absolutely. You know, we asked Gunny, Army, you know, SF commander guy, I guess he was. I, You know, they don't ever tell you who they are, right? <laughs> He's like, yeah, we'll take care of them. And it's just routine, you know, blah, blah, blah. And like, okay, so we went. When we get to the to their special forces compound to pick up the rest of the crew, radio chatter comes over that possibility that the hospital there is going to come under attack. <laughs> Well, it starts getting nighttime, right? And so we push to the hospital. I, I go inside, hand out syringes and bandages, fluids to the doctors and nurses that work in there. And then it comes over the radio that the hospital's under attack. So we egress out of the building. I get back to the vehicle. And the only Army Special Forces dude that I remember his name of is Andy because he was the medic. He's like, hey, guys, so we got word that so many are coming to overrun this hospital. Uh, we got to maintain. And so where the Humvee was parked at, their 50 cal was pointed at the entrance of the gate, right? And so he's like, hey, who here knows how to operate a 50 cal? Both the other uh, corner were like, uh, Fonseca does. He's with the AVs. So um, so they're like, hey, get on the 50 cal. And so I'm on and goes, you see that red dot? And it's the first time I'd ever seen any type of sights on a 50 cal, you know, on the AVs, it's just your iron sights and you're just lobbing. But it's like, you know, I don't know if it was a laser sight or just a red sight, but I remember, I was like, oh my God, that's so cool. So we end up getting attacked, you know, a lot of awesome rounds. We end up, you know, deterring the, the, the combatants, all of a 15, 20 minute firefight, load back up and head back south, uh, head back to, to, to their base, drop them off, and then they take us back. I remember when I get back, Gunny's like, what the F, Doc? I heard you just got in a firefight. And I was so like stoked because I was like, oh, I was the Army SF and they had laser sighted 50 cows. I'm like, yeah, Gunny, it's so cool. And all of a sudden he's like, it's not fucking funny. You will never leave my sight again. I was like, oh, good. <laughs> so that's when, you know, you know, like you, you felt the love, you know, and, um, and, and you felt accepted. And after that, any firefighter or, or, or battle that we, came into 
in the moment, I'm just really good at it. I'm really good at, at separating myself from the situation, which I believe is allowed me to be very successful in a lot of missions and especially in a lot of emergency situations, whether it was on the battlefield or, you know, back in a roll three hospital somewhere safer than right on the front lines or even back in the United States at an emergency department to really maintain my composure and, and realize that I'm not the one dying right now. It's this patient and I need to focus on them. In Iraq, in that first deployment, you know, you build a camaraderie before you even get on a deployment, right? Because you're you're training together, you're building that relationship, you're building that trust. All of y'all are training together, you know, for your mission or how to, you know, kick down doors or operate or whatever it is. But in country, especially, oh my goodness, especially after a day like March 23rd, it's funny because back in those days, rank was really a, a very strict thing in the military throughout all the branches. But that was the first time where I really saw a lot of rank just kind of, it didn't matter anymore. Yes, we called our sergeants sergeants and our corporals corporal, but like you didn't see people standing in modified parade dress, you know what I mean? Like it was really a brotherhood. Staff NCOs playing dominoes, spades with their junior personnel. You know, that 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 uh, sandstorm that came in, uh, I think on the 24th and the 25th, that was completely blacked out. I remember having to button down in the AVs there and, uh, for like 24 hours and, 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 uh, and sand was still getting in there playing spades with my gunny. I remember one time we, we got into one of Saddam's training camps and me being the dumb squid that I am, um, I grabbed one of my young PFCs. I'm like, Hey, let's go look exploring in these buildings, see if we could find some treasures to take back home. And Gunny's like, don't you boys go blowing yourselves up? We're like, we won't, Gunny, we won't. Lo and behold, like the fit door. And of course me, like I say, being the young idiot that I am, right? I'm playing grunt. So I have my, my nine pistol like this. And I'm like, all right, PFC, I forgot who it was with me. I was like, all right, we're going to enter this door. Like pretending like we're grunts. I'm going to kick it in and you're going to go right in after me. He's like, okay, doc. And I was like, one, two, three. And I kick open the door. And then all of a sudden you hear, Ping, 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 ping. There was mortar shells. That whole room, the whole floor was lined in mortar shells. And I kicked open the door and all of a sudden they all just start like dominoes. Boom, boom, boom. I remember just frozen. It was like, uh, doc, I think we need to leave. <laughs> so we left. So Gunny was like, see, I told you, I told you, that's why you're not supposed to leave me. So we had to get EOD out there and they're like, oh my goodness. I'm, I'm sure other people had stories when you're driving with only night vision goggles on. And back then in 2003, we were lucky if we had, you know, generation one night vision goggles, you know, um, it, so you really couldn't see anything. Our driver at that time, Lance Corporal Smith, made a turn and where he turned out was right onto a ditch. And I remember I was sleeping in the back, sleeping in the back on a jump seat like this, and it seesaws. Whoosh. Next thing you know, I'm flying in the air and I hit the top of the AV. Bah! And I landed like, what? going on and goes like don't worry doc don't worry we just fell in a ditch and i'm like what nose was all busted i was like oh my goodness like i'm getting hurt more just on downtime than in actual combat and then after surviving something like that with those brothers you the conversations they turn very wholesome they turn very human some of us that have been in the military understand that you can go three four years out a unit and only know a person by their rank and their last name. And that's all you'll ever know. And what they do at work. 
And there's nothing wrong with that, right? You, you're going to build friendships however you, you're going to build them. I did nine deployments in 22 years, but because that was my first one, all of us are still in contact with each other. We all know everyone's kids, every, you know, everyone's spouses. So that's what I mean about those conversations started becoming more human. You know, we would joke around about killing the enemy or this or that and all the gruesome stuff. But when we sat down and it was one-on-one, four people talking and, and, oh, hey, I finally glad you finally got a letter from home. What's, what's going on? Oh, my wife or my kids, this, you know, Sergeant Bits passed away without ever seeing his twins. And he knew his twins were born because he got the Red Cross message, I want to say two days before we left into Iraq. When we sat around and, and talked about Michael Bitts and his kids that he never got to see, like those to me were the real human connection interactions where as cliche as it sounds, those conversations, those conversations over playing spades, dominoes, over that balls of two watch when you're exhausted and you're talking to each other on the radio just to keep each other awake. That's when it becomes very personal and it's, and now it's a brother and sister hood type of a thing is no longer a nation. It's no longer, you know, our president called us to do this. Or our commanders are telling us to do this. It's you have a family to go home to. I'm going to make sure you're going to go home to it. And that person next to you says the same thing. It's an unspoken thing, you know? So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of humanity in war. There's more humanity in war during the down times there are during the pew pew times, because those are very, very small and in between, especially my experience. You know, I'm sure Vietnam and Korea and World War II guys saw more of the pew-pews on a daily than I ever did. But, you know, that's definitely where the humanity comes in and, and you build those lasting bonds and relationships. On Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, there's the Interment School, Michael Bitts. The Interment Michael Bitts School, which is a school on the base. And it only goes up, I want to say, to like fifth grade. His wife was there, and I, I met his wife before the deployment, and even as shortly after we got back, his parents were there. It was the first time I seen his twins, and this was probably two years after his passing, two, three years after his passing. So his twins weren't too grown up, but I did get to speak about their dad a little bit in front of him. I haven't seen him ever since that day, and I hope to get to see this now as, as older, uh, as young adults. And I, I was a guest speaker for that the school be named in honor of him. And I remember one of the things I said about him was, it's so fitting that a school is named after Michael Bitts because that's who he was. He was an educator. He was a leader. He was a teacher. And I spoke at the school about that story, about how that first, you know, field op, he was like, Doc, don't ever say that. You need to learn about this vehicle because you never know. And I, I spoke to the school and the and the staff and the students about the meaning for me that this name has been put on a building. It continues the legacy of, of who he was as, as, like I said, a teacher, a leader, a mentor, an instructor, someone that you would never hesitate to follow, you know, someone that you would almost never hesitate to question their knowledge or the knowledge that they're trying to pass down onto you. So if there's anything I could ever re-say to his family, is that Michael Bitts, although flesh is not here anymore, his legacy, his teachings, who he was as a man, as a mentor, as a Marine for me, still lives on. And his teachings that taught me 
you're talking 20 years ago now, are still some of the core fundamentals of how I compose myself as an adult and as hopefully a good leader. You know, 22-year uh, Navy career, nine deployments, five of, them, five of them being combat boots on ground deployments, the other ones being on the ship, humanitarian missions, training missions, things like that. <laughs> there's a reason I'm, I'm writing my memoirs, right? <laughs> there's, there's a lot. But, you know, one thing I want people to know is, you know, I could have stopped deploying years ago. And it's not that I'm a warmonger. It's not that I enjoy combat. It's just that it's kind of like, wow, I finally found something I'm good at. And even though I never felt I was a good sailor or a good leader, I always thought I was a really freaking phenomenal corpsman. I always did. And that's why I volunteered so many times to go back. There was also part of me, too, that kept going back because being awarded the Navy Cross, and though internally I never felt like I deserved it, I never felt I was good enough for it because I was never raised that way in my childhood or even early on in my Navy career, right? Um, like I said, the story before, I had a sergeant major that every chance he got told me how big of a piece of shit I was. So when I finally felt I, I found something I was good at, I just wanted to keep doing it. And then the more I kept doing it and picking up more rank and leading young men and women into the same situations and seeing them flourish, it became more to me of a mission of the more times I get out there and I can train the ones that are really going outside the wire now to me, to have these skill sets, to be able to come home and bring their as many of their comrades home with them is where that mission for the next 22 years came and where before we talked about when did the tides change of, of when it really became a career for me. And that was what I say, March 23rd, 2003 was really when it started to change and, and I realized, damn, I'm actually good at something. And even though I never bragged about it, I internally knew I was good at it. I, I did. So for the next deployments, I had a lot of fun. The, obviously my first one was my biggest combat deployment, but in 2005, I was uh, in Iraq again, running convoys out of Al-Assad. And in 05, I was running with a, a supply unit, a motor transport unit. You know, not front lines, not combat roles. But I got involved in more firefights and got hit by more IDs running with a supply unit, running convoys to resupply than I ever have with any infantry unit. And a matter of fact, on one mission, the convoy I was in, we got hit. My convoy command, commander, Chief Warren Officer Wells, was killed on on uh, on impact. My driver, she got thrown out the driver's hatch. My radio operator got thrown out his radio, uh, his hatch, and I got trapped inside the Vic. And the Vic got hit by a double stack anti tank mine that ended up landing on its roof, and I got trapped inside with my gear. And I remember trying to pull myself from the steering wheel. This is after I'd already. I'd already seen Chief Ornosa Roses hanging in the seat and I reached in his face to kind of wake him up. But my whole hand just went in and, and it shocked me. I'm not going to sit here and lie like, oh, it went in. I just pulled it out. No, it shocked me. I was like, oh, crap. And I saw all the blood and I was like, that's what I knew. Like he got hit and he's gone. So that's when I started trying to pull myself. And I just happened to glance over like this so I could see out the hatch, the driver's side hatch. And I see uh, uh, the corporal, she's hobbling over and I'm like, what the hell? And I see her like, I can't hear. I just hear doing some motion and I'm like still trying to, to pull myself out. And she finally gets to the hatch and uh, she's like, doc, you got to get out. You got to get out. And I'm like, what's going on, corporal? What's going on? And she's like, we've been hit. We've been hit. 
um, the vehicle's on fire. You got to get out. And I'm like, I can't. I'm, I'm trapped. And I remember at that time I, I could hear her now. I'm like, I'm trapped. I'm yanking. She's yanking on my, on my gear. And I'm like, and I look at her. I was like, Corporal, it's too late. Leave. I said, go set up perimeter. She's like, no, doc. And I'm like, we have an, an ambulance in the convoy. We have two other corpsmen. Leave. And so what I thought what she was doing was getting up and leaving is she actually just got up, ran to the other side of the Vic, pulled out her knife, opened the hatch, and started cutting my gear off. And she cut all my gear off and then started pulling me out. She's like, Doc, let's go. So her and I are hobbling over. And then, you know, the rest of the corpsmen and, and everyone gets there. And and uh, I medevac her, my radio operator. He's an angel, our chief warrant officer, gets medevac. And they were trying to medevac me. And I was like, no, I'm good. Nothing's wrong. I ride up to the convoy. Uh, we're going to Al-Qaim. I get up to Al-Qaim. The doctors in IDC see me up there. There was a little bit of blood. Um from the impact, you know, coming out of my ears. Um, they wanted to medevac me to Al-Assad, and I was like, absolutely not. I'm riding this convoy back down with my Marines. I said, there's no other corpsman that is going to take my spot. You know, that was probably the second time, you know, in, in my career where, yeah, I, I felt that the Marines just embraced me, that they were like, oh, my God, who is this dude, you know? And that made me feel good. I'm not going to lie. You know, after being told I, I was almost worthless, almost, you know, from what I can remember, to being accepted by this group of, of men and women that, that, like I said, even till this day, is and not blowing smoke up anyone's ass. Is when I see a Marine, I, I know what they go through to get that title, you know. And and so seeing them embrace me once again, I knew that was where I belonged. I knew that's what I wanted to do until I couldn't do it anymore, whether it was at the cost of my life or I eventually retired. Fortunately, I made it to retirement after 22 years and got to stand in front of that podium to thank my family, the great leaders, because absolutely, I think statistic-wise, there, there shouldn't have been a reason why I should have made it to that podium. After nine deployments, 17 years of drinking myself stupid, using illegal drugs here and there to try to combat my demons, just that in itself, I shouldn't have made it. The NJPs, I was NJP'd four times. I'd be a fool to, to, to sit here and think that my Navy Cross didn't allow certain doors to either stay open or didn't allow for good leaders to be able to kick down some of those doors, right? And then, you know, on July 8th of 2018, I had a suicide attempt on active duty with a Glock 21. So July 8th of 2018, I had relapsed. I got in trouble in 2014 when I was in Grand Connecticut for my second DUI, my Navy career, and going UA. Even though they knew I was in a hospital, in a psych institute, they still charged me with UA. And I'd relapsed at that time. And, you know, we could put the blame on whoever, but I, I always like to take full responsibility for my actions. I could have said no. But yes, it was my senior enlisted leader, my SEO at the schoolhouse, that after 10 months of sobriety, looked at me and said, Fonseca, you're not a drunk. If you were, you would already relapsed by now and offered me a beer. And I could have easily said, no, absolutely not. But I said, yes. So I take that responsibility. I relapsed. I drank for about another six months. I stopped again. And then I relapsed again after about another six months. And it took, at that relapse happened in 2016. And it carried on until 2018. So uh, about a year and a half. From the moment I relapsed that last time, when people talk about relapsing and you go kind of back to using the same way you were, it had never been that way with me until this last one. And it had really gotten me hitting 
I never drank liquor because liquor always just was really bad for me. But I went straight back into drinking liquor. And then um, I'd always lie to everyone about my PTSD, to doctors, to uh, clinicians, to my spouse, my ex-spouse at that time, now my current spouse, my kids, my parents, everyone. Everyone I always lied to. Always told me I never thought about suicide. You know, did I say, yeah, it sucks, war sucks, and I cried here and there? For sure. But I always try to lie as much as I could about it, hide it. When I would go see doctors, because I was a corpsman, I kind of knew what to say to get out of therapy quickly. Especially if it was a young doctor. And I will admit, especially if it was a young female doctor that was right out of school. So she was a young lieutenant. And, oh, H1 Fonseca walks in with all of his rows of ribbons. Tell me about the Navy Cross. Oh, yes, ma'am. Blah, blah, blah. And I know how to, you know, um, swoon them or whatever we don't call them, you know, like persuade them or whatever and okay yeah Fonseca we'll see you next week and in three weeks I'm I've already won them over with my charm and my charisma right so then in three weeks I'm like all right doc you see I'm really not that screwed up give me a chip to get back out to the field I need to get back out on the ship or something back out on deployment but yeah on July 8th of 2018 I mean that secret was out we're living already in Ramona California and uh, my son my 21 year old at that time he was 16, 17, was raised in Chula Vista. So he'd ask, like, hey, dad, can I go down there to visit some friends? And it was early in the morning. It was already eight, nine in the morning, unbeknownst to my wife and son, because like I said, that relapse was really bad and I, I was hiding it. They didn't know I was drunk when my son asked me to take him. Well, I was already getting drunk. And so I said, absolutely. And uh, as he's getting ready, I remember walking into the garage and I had a bottle of tequila hidden in, in the garage. And I, I had a two shot glasses, I poured two shots, bang them real quick. And I'm like, no, no, two more, I bang those real quick. And I'm like, fuck it, two more. And I bang, so I bang six shots real quick. Cause in my mind, I was like, well, by the time I take my son down to Chula Vista, the liquor's just gonna start kicking in. So I'll be wasted when he's already out of the car. Because like any good alcoholic, we, we justify why we're doing what we're doing, right? Why it's okay. At that moment, you know, when it's oh, only drink beer during the weekdays. So that's why I'm not an alcoholic or whatever, right? To get back home, you have to drive up a canyon road. It's called Wildcat Canyon Road. And it is a very windy canyon road, like you would think. My game plan was take off my seatbelt and shoot myself in the head because one of two things was going to kill me. If the bullet didn't kill me, then the impact of the round hitting my head would jerk me and my car would either slam into the side of the mountain and kill me on impact or would go off the edge of the cliff and I would die that way. So I had it, you know, pretty thought out. My Glock was in the glove box. So I pulled out my Glock and I laid on the um, armrest, the center console. And I remember seeing cars coming and, and, and I didn't want to hurt anyone else. So I was like, I'll wait till there's no cars and then I'll do it. So finally, you know, came a time where there was no cars and there was a curve coming around and grabbed my Glock. And I don't know if anyone else, you put your knee kind of drive, you know, your car. So I'm doing that and I grab my gun and I look, I see the round eject. I look in the chamber. There's one in there doing this. Let the round go. Grab the steering wheel, grab the gun. And I hear click. To me, it's never been an out-of-body experience. It's never been like I was looking at myself from the, like I, till this day, I knew absolutely everything that was going on, every sound. I knew I wasn't dead instantaneously um, and I was pissed off. So what do I do? Grab the gun again, 
pull the slide back again, make sure that there's no round in it one more time. Let the slide go, grab the steering wheel, wait for that other turn, no cars coming, put that gun to my head, pull the trigger, without hesitation, bam. The fuck? Knowing I was still alive, pissed off, because I was such a piece of shit, I couldn't even kill myself properly. That was the first thought in my head. See, Luis, you're worthless, you're a piece of shit. You don't even know how to kill yourself properly. With a gun that doesn't ever misfire. It's a Glock. Not thinking like, damn, Luis, someone's keeping you here for a reason. So my plan B was to get home, pull into the driveway, walk into the house. And because I still talk very negatively to myself at those times to motivate myself, I would say, all right, Luis, if you think you're such a man, go inside, tell your wife and kids you love them, then walk into the garage and hang yourself. And that was the plan. That was plan B. Uh, had the gun in, in, in my holster, walked into the house, wife's taking a shower, kids are all back playing. So I go in to tell the wife I'm home, I love you. And I wasn't even going to tell the kids, I was just going to walk in to the garage and hang myself. Walk into the bathroom, said, hey babe, I'm home. Uh, yes, me and my wife usually shower every day together. So she was shower, she's like, hey babe, do you want to jump in the shower with me? And that's what saved my life. Her asking me to jump in the shower with her and me, Saying yes is what saved my life. Because I got in the shower and I'm only five foot five. My wife's five foot four, so I'm not taller than her at all. But I remember her putting her hands on my chest and just, I remember her, she was icy washing her, her hair and face. She was getting all the soap and water out of her face. She was doing this. She goes like this, you know, trying to feel, she feels me. She just kind of opens her eyes, just looks at me in the eyes. She goes, baby, she goes, please tell me what, what's going on. And, you know, me thinking I was hiding everything very well, I just broke down and just floodgates start crying. Now, all I could tell her was like, I don't know what's going on. I said, the only thing I do know is I have my Glock 21. I just pulled the trigger on it twice. I'm pissed off that the rounds didn't go off. And my plan is to be in here to tell you I love you and to go out into the garage and hang myself. That day, my wife took action. Um, she asked me to stay in the shower for five minutes. She goes, just give me five minutes. I knew already what she was going to do. Um, she went and grabbed my guns, uh, put them all back in the safe. We have a cipher lock safe. She went and uh, changed the code on that and took the spare keys. My mother-in-law lives on our property. She lives in her, a trailer on, on our property. And she went out to my mother-in-law's house and gave my mother-in-law the extra keys, all the keys to the safe, the gun safe. Came back in. I was still in the shower crying. Not sure if it was five or 10 minutes by that time, but she came back in. She goes, okay, are you ready to go get help now? And I said, yeah. Monday morning, woke up. She took me into work. So she had already called chief while she was putting my guns away and giving everything to my mother-in-law. And uh, so he was already aware and they were aware that I was going to come in Monday morning and go to Fleet and Family Services to go uh, seek help from them. And the reason I didn't go to the Naval Hospital and... He knows now, after I retired, I told him what was up, and I share this. And not so that leaders look for this, but just so that maybe leaders understand that sometimes you just have to listen to your junior personnel, what they need. So I was using illegal drugs during that time as well, too. So I knew if I went to the hospital, they were going to draw blood. And part of that blood draw was a drug panel, and I knew I would pop. So um, I convinced convinced them. I was like, please let me go to Fleet Family Services. I've already had a bad experience with naval doctors. I just want to see someone outside. 
it ended up being a, a hidden blessing because it allowed me to maintain my career, but it allowed me to see this clinician, um, Kristen, who put me in the cell program, who is besides my wife and mom, the, the third woman that's probably stepped in my life to save my life. The compassion, the way she treated me. She was probably one of the first people that I was able to walk into the office and because she was a civilian, and although she's worked her whole life with military, the Navy Cross didn't mean shit to her. And it was so rewarding. By the first day that our first session was done, I looked at Chris and I said, I'm going to give you something I've never given anyone else. It's like, what's that, Louise? I said, I'm going to give you the truth. And from that moment on, I knew that the only way to heal and recover was to be brutally honest with myself and anyone else that was in my life that really wanted me to get better and be a better person, to just be brutally honest with who I am, what I'm dealing with, and where I am at points in my life to keep myself here for for my little ones, for my brothers and sisters, you know? So, well, and, and, and I gave it so much more to my wife because not only is she dealing with me as, you know, her spouse and all the crap I got going on too, right? But my wife also... She retired 21 years as a Navy corpsman. She's an IDC, you know. Um, she has her own traumas, you know. Uh, and she speaks about it. That's why we started the, the foundation. Um, she has uh, military sexual trauma in her career. For her to put aside all of her struggles to pick me up, you know. And, and I, I do come from a very machismo male mentality that the man's supposed to pick up the family and carry the family at all times. But for my wife to have done that, even when she was sometimes struggling with her own shit, you know, and I didn't see it. And for her to come come in and and suit me up and uh, and carry me at those times is is a strength that I admire. And and if there's ever a time in her life that she needs me like that, I hope I can give her a fraction of what she gave me during those times. So the transition for me back into the civilian world was very liberating. It was, I talk about this a lot, me and my wife do actually, um, because we retired in a joint retirement ceremony, retired together. I after 22, her after 21. So our transitions were complete opposites. Uh, like I said, I had my suicide attempt in, in July of 2018. So I went another four years on active duty post my suicide attempt. So my last four years of my Navy career, I tell people were probably the best four years of my career because it was so fulfilling in the fact that no longer was I hiding who I was. I was very honest with everyone, my leadership, my junior sailors. I was open about my struggles, about my mental health, about my recovery from alcoholism and addiction. Although I used the term addiction very loosely in front of them, I would use examples like, hey, I got myself in $25,000 worth of debt when I was stationed in Grand Connecticut because I went to the casino every night and gambled. So I would talk about addictions like that, even though the underlying was also my drug addiction, right? So I would talk to them like that. So the last four years, were just so satisfying because I had so many young men and women come knock on my door and just say, HM1, I need some help. I'm dealing with this. Or I'd have leaders call me up. You know, we're talking about E7s, E8s, E9s, sometimes officers and be like, HM1, I got this young sailor, this young Marine. They're good, but we're just having a hard time getting them, getting to them, getting them to realize that outside factors can affect their career. Can you please talk to them? 
send them over to my office. Or matter of fact, let me go over there to their office or to where they're at. And I'd go talk to a lot of junior people and, and, and see some of them flourish. You know, can't save them all, but see the ones that, you know, are now flourishing now, you know, are HM1s as well too, right? Are my peers. And I think because of my suicide attempt, something I've always said post-retirement was one of the best things about retirement is that I've gone to rediscover who I am, not reinvent myself, but rediscover who young 18-year-old Luis Fonseca was before he joined the military and went into combat and, and, and you know, experienced all of this next 22 years of life. You see, we retired on Friday. We stayed down in San Diego the whole weekend with our family at the resort. Monday, we came back home. Tuesday morning, I woke up and I uh, destroyed every single article of uniform besides my dress blues uniform, my dress whites. Anything that I always kept, oh, in case I go back on a deployment, this is better gear than what they give us. I either gave away to like my younger kids or, you know, family or, or, or threw away. Um, because for me, that, that episode, that chapter was over. HM1 Fonseca no longer existed and I was very happy for that. It was all Luis Fonseca now. That's why even till this day, I don't sign my name HM1 retired. I don't introduce myself as HM1 retired or I'm Luis HM1, you know. If sailors still call me HM1, I don't correct them, but I was ready for HM whatever Fonseca to, to be done. I was once told when it stops being fun, it's time to retire. And it stopped being fun a long time ago. I was just trying to make it through. I was trying to, to reignite that vigor, that fun that I had. It was just gone. I was enjoying leading men and women, don't get me wrong, and, and, and teaching them the skill sets that that allowed me to be very successful, but the leadership, what was going on with leadership, what I was seeing was just wasn't fun anymore. By that time, you know, I was 38, 39, 40, coming up towards retirement. You know, I probably had 10 years more than most of my chiefs did. You know, they're all 12 years in, 13 years in, and I don't discredit them for making that rank, but when they're making decisions, and I'm like, chief, that's not like, I'm telling you right now, well, what do you know? You're just HM1. You know what? Obviously, no matter what I do, once again, right? What I do, because I don't have the rank, it's not good enough. So it's time for me to exit stage left. So yeah, my retirement was very liberating, whereas my wife's, she really did lose her sense of who she was. She retired as a very high position as an IDC, being the ISIC, which is the immediate super, superior in command. So she was in charge of eight naval warships on the waterfront, their medical department. So she really retired, like, who am I now? What am I supposed to do? Where I, when I came up retirement, uh, Luis Fonseca, no shame, was already established. Uh, I was already making it into a nonprofit, knowing that my retirement life was going to be trying to prevent suicides and see how I can share my story and or my experiences to help young men and women that feel that no one else understands what they're going through or, or feel like, I shouldn't show this because it's going to show that I'm weak. Well, look, dude, fucking a Navy Cross recipient, the only one from Iraq talks about it. Then at least I can talk about it. And I, and, and so for me, that's why I think it was very liberating where for my wife, it was just like, what's next? What do I do? Who am I? I think I just had a lot of great leaders that always put that thought in my head was Fonseca. Always remember this uniform is going to come off for good once in my mind. I had created this world where I thought the Navy, the Marine Corps, my leadership, my peers. Um, and they could have, I don't know for a fact, they could have, I don't know, but I created it in my mind that they wanted this poster picture perfect 
Navy corpsman, right? And every time I would screw up or any time I would go do something behind closed doors that I knew was against UCMJ or our ethos or ethics, whatever, there was always that imposter syndrome. There was always that when I would go speak at commands, uh, hospital corps birthdays, Marine Corps birthdays, dining outs, things like that. And I was like, hoorah, motivated, kill, you know, Navy Corps values, honor, courage, commitment, live up to them, be the best sailor. But I know I'm not living up to that would just kill me inside every time. So I would go back into the hotel room or I'd get back home and I would just drink myself stupid. You know, I could talk the talk. I was really good, really good at talking the talk and motivating people. And even externally, like while we're in uniform in the field, motivating people. But when I got home, it was really Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde took off that uniform I had to work so hard on maintaining this persona for the last eight, 10 hours. Now I just need to go home and, and release it, release the fakeness that I was portraying. And the only way I knew how to do that was through drinking, drugging, sexing, gambling, whatever, whatever took that void or that pain away, I gravitated to it. That's why I consider myself an addiction. I mean, if I pick up a chapstick and it, it soothes me, I guarantee I'm going to use that chapstick till there's none left, almost r- ritually. You know, it's crazy that way. So that's why uh, on active duty, my mental health was just a little bit more harder was because I was always faking the funk until, like I said, July 8th when I had my suicide attempt and now my big secret is out. So I had, had one of two options, keep lying to everyone. And now everyone knows that I'm lying to them or just be brutally honest. And that's what my chief told me when I got back to the unit. He was like, all right, Fonseca, he goes, I was like, hey, chief, where do you want me? He goes, you need to lead your, your sailors. I'm like, well, chief, but this, this, and that. He goes, no. He goes, the only thing your sailors know is that you've been taking care of a family emergency. He goes, it's up to you what you want to tell them, Fonseca. That's all he said. But what I heard was, it's up to you whether you want to keep lying to everyone and eventually you're going to kill yourself and be successful or let's start being honest. Let's start getting some help. So I stood in front of my sailors for the first time, you know, in front of leadership and told them everything. And I think that's where really the healing began where the, the I don't give a fuck mentality about whether I got in trouble or not went to I don't give a fuck mentality about what you think of me as a leader because right now it's a life and death situation for me and right now I'm choosing life and if that makes you uncomfortable that's on you that's not on me you know and I know there there are statutes of limitations people have already told me Louise be careful what you talk about but I'm also at a point in my life that if the Navy or the Marine Corps wants to come back after me for something I did 15 years ago then it is what it is, you know, but I'm going to keep sharing my story and the truth of it so that hopefully that young Marine or sailor or soldier or airman or coasty, whoever's looking at this one day or comes across it and might be fighting the same things can say, you know what, I've held this secret. I don't maybe need to share all of it, but at least I can be honest about so much of it that I can get some proper true help. In the Corman community, we're really bad about eating ourselves alive. I think Marines are the same way, same with Special Forces, right? You'll see someone with the FMF pin. And what's the first thing another Navy Corman asked that person? Where'd you get that pin from? And then they say anything else besides a ground combat unit? Oh, that FMF pin's not real then. You know, because they're either a supply unit or air wing. You know, they got the air wing. When I was young and stupid, I... I, I I thought that way and I, I perpetuated that too, right? I would look at, that's not real. I, or I'd have my FMF ribbon and I'd see other FMF people like, dude, I had mine when it was just a ribbon, you know, things like that. Now, after multiple deployments, 
doing different roles, whether it was front lines kicking down doors or it was staying back in the rear, calling in planes to pick up medevacs or being on a ship to receive medevacs or even being home. I've come to learn that we all play our role in this organization. And one of the most vital roles that gets played has to be continued. And what do I mean by that is I use this term called the continuation of a promise. Every time I got down on my knees to work on a casualty, and even though I necessarily didn't say, I'm going to get you home alive, I would say, I promise you, I'm doing everything I can. I promise you this. I promise you that. I'm bandaging you up. I promise you to get you on the bird. You're going to get there, right? Some of them you can't promise because you know their wounds aren't severe enough that they're going to expire. So you know, hey, I promise you, you're probably going to lose your leg, but you're going to be fine besides that, right? As soon as I relinquish that casualty onto either that medic or that other corpsman, whether it's on a bird, on a vehicle, on a ship, they have to carry my promise that I made to that casualty. So everyone involved in that, whether you're driving the Vic, whether your hands on the casualty, whether you're waiting on the ship to receive that, those casualties, whether you're on a ship reading radars to make sure the airspace is clear, whether you're, you know, on an air tower calling in the planes to, to make sure the helos land safely to bring the casualties back, or whether you're waiting here on the United States to receive those casualties, or you're the administrative person that is making sure that my pay is correct when I'm out there so I don't have to worry about it so that anything happens to me, I know my wife and kids are taken care of because all my paperwork is in line. They don't understand, as cliche as it sounds, how much stress that takes away from us. And me knowing that I have a team of people that I've never met in my life that are standing by waiting to carry that promise that those people made on the front lines or on the, on the X, whatever it is, whether it's a heat casualty on a hike, on the range as a mishap, whatever it is, knowing that when that first line responder gets to them and starts banging them up, and if they're alive on that plane, or wherever they're going to next, it might not have been spoken, but I can tell you in that heart of that first responder, there's that promise that he's making to himself or herself. I will do everything I can to keep him alive or her life. And when we hand them off, is that unspoken, that eye contact. This is my brother. This is my sister. Take care of him. Thank you. And you go off. It's a beautiful thing to, to have that, you know? And so what I would tell people is, I can understand what it's like to say, I volunteered and I never got deployed and I wanted to go. I'll never take that away from someone and I would never diminish that feeling. The only thing I can tell them is, the only thing that you missed was nightmares, PTSD, fucking polio divorced. I said, now if you want all those things, you can have them without going to combat. I said, but if you think that you missed out because you didn't live up to a title, I said, you earned the title the day you graduate boot camp, the day you graduate MOS school, A school, C school, whatever it is, you earned it already. No one can ever take that away from you. And as long as you did your duties as you were instructed to do by your leadership, you did your role.
We all did our role. Some of us did things that we didn't want to do. I'm not going to lie to you. Did I ever really want to go to combat? I thought I did until I really went. Then I never wanted to go. But why did I volunteer to go so many more other times? Because I just thought I was good at something. I could help another corpsman gain my skill sets. If you think that it makes you any less of a soldier, a Marine, a, a, a squid, an airman, because you weren't on front lines or you didn't get to drop bombs or you didn't you know, see casualties in that aspect, you're, 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 you're not. You are ever so worthy of every title that you have earned in your life. And we do our job because we know we have brothers and sisters back here taking care of those things and also are standing by waiting to replenish us when we get taken down. So No Shame Warrior Foundation was first initially started as Luis Fonseca No Shame, which was after my suicide attempt. Just speaking openly about my suicide attempt, my trauma, my PTSD, how I've been going through therapy, the things I do in therapy to get to where I'm at today, which eventually evolved into No Shame Warrior Foundation. Uh, we became a 501c August of 2022. That started just out of uh, a fondness of me wanting to, to reach people that are hurting, that maybe they don't feel that someone might understand or they're ashamed of, you know, the thoughts that are going on in their head or their drinking or drug use or imposter syndrome, whatever it is. I just saw that the last four years of me speaking about it, how it allowed so many young men and women to open up. So initially it started off as me just wanting to kind of do this podcasting on my own and, and, and put my message out where it has evolved to the last 10 months, what we call a nonprofit that not just only brings awareness to suicide, but we also take action. And anyone can get involved with No Shame Warrior Foundation at no cost whatsoever. All it takes is this, and I'll explain to you all. Uh, no Shame Warrior Foundation, we have a team. Who is made up of this team? I have no idea, except for a very small few. Why? Because we are on social media platforms across all social media platforms. We're we are embedded in a lot of the veteran uh, Facebook pages, Instagram pages. So anytime a post comes up where someone says, that's it, I'm done with it. Today's the end of my life. I no longer want to exist. I'm going to kill myself. Whatever it is, all you have to do is send that screenshot over to No Shame Warrior Foundation across any social media platform, or you can email it to us at warrior at noshamewarriorfoundation.org. We do a background check to see how legitimate it is. And then from there, we will go and try to locate the person. We focus on mainly people that have gone completely off the grid. So they've either destroyed their cell phone, destroyed their computers, damaged them, turned them off, poor resources. And yes, it takes a lot of steps in order to be able to get to the point where we can call law enforcement and or other agencies. I'll just put it that way, that they can ping cell phones that are also destroyed. But it takes a lot of work to get to that point. So we've gone that process from 28 hours down to the last one. It took us six hours to get all the information. And we're making that faster and faster as we search for more people and get in contact with more local state departments. And as of today, in operation of doing that for the last 10 months, uh, as a founder, I get to brag about my team and say that we have successfully found nine veterans. Three of them were active duty. Uh, out of those nine, all of them are still alive till this day. Uh, we make sure that they get their follow-on care in a timely and, and properly uh, time frame. And we have had uh, Maryland, Virginia State Police, Maine, 
Uh, we work with them. Uh, actually, Maryland was super impressed that they're helping us try to get more like on a national wide. So that when No Shame Warrior Foundation knocks on any state department or agency's door and we're like, hey, this is who we are. We need the cell phone ping. It's no longer a back and forth thing. Okay, we need this. We need that. Now it's like, oh, you're No Shame Warrior Foundation. You're you got great credibility. We're not even going to open this up. We already know you have everything. Let's ping it. Let's find these people. So that's where our mission is. That's where we're trying to get to, you know, rise from the ashes comes from, you know, the phoenix, the symbolism of the phoenix is the only way a phoenix can ever create a, a phoenix is by destroying itself. And that's how I feel we have to do when, when we come to these parts in our, in, in our life, these crossroads, like for me, committing, wanting to commit suicide. I initially destroyed who Luis Fonseca was for those last 17 years. And I had to rebuild a new one, right? So I had to rise from my ashes from the own destruction of my mental health. So that's where all that comes into play. And uh, so, yeah, any merch or anything that that you see online from us never goes back into any of our pockets. 100% of it all goes back finding veterans and helping veterans. We have other things that we call like you know, like the icing or the cherry on the cake, like scholarships. We have a scholarship, but that's the cherry on the cake. You know, we do some debt relief. We've, as of, uh, been in full operation as a 501c3, we've, we've raised over $14,000. I've given all of the $14,000 back to veterans or service members to help them with medical bills due to mental health uh, issues. You know, we had a young lady that was living credit card to credit card, paying uh, her child support because her husband left her on a field op, she came home off the ship after being gone two weeks. In, uh, not infants, but toddlers. She found him playing uh, in, in her living room. The husband left that morning, hadn't seen him for nine months. She called us at that time over, you know, $8,000 worth of debt, just in childcare alone, pulled back the onion. It was really her childcare that was affecting her. So we called the CDC in Virginia and uh, said, hey, you got this person here. They're uh, uh, customers of yours. They acknowledge it. I said, I don't need to know anything. I just need to pay this much of, of their bill. And they're like, I'm sorry, who are you again? I was like, you don't need to worry about it. Here's the credit card number. It's all legit. And so like we took care of her. So she was able to focus the next year on just recovering and building a better future for her and her kids. So there's little things like that that we also try to to, to do. But our main focus is is finding those humans that are just at the critical moment that they're just thinking, no one cares about them. No one wants them. No one loves them. And hopefully we can come in and show you that there are people that care and love you, even though we don't know who you are. And all those nine people that we have found to this day, I have never personally met them ever in my life. Three of them have said to us on the phone or via email, I didn't realize there was people out there that cared. And I said, yeah, we're here. Growing up, I always wanted to have a child and name them Phoenix because I was a big River Phoenix fan, but I never named any of my kids Phoenix. And so when my now wife and I got together, we were best friends for about four or five years before we ever dated. I was a single father when I first met her. She was a single mom, both coming out of relationships, rough relationships. And so I just knew I didn't want to get remarried. So for like the next four years, I was living the bachelor life. When I was in Grand Connecticut and I got in trouble, I came back home here back San Diego in 2015 for my SARP program. And at that time when uh, my marriage with my ex-wife was already, it was a, a four-year marriage because we had kids and property and all that. And it was ugly divorce. Like I said, I was a single dad. And um, so all that was finally coming to an end. And so we started dating and 
a year into it, you know, asked her to marry me and got married like two or three months later. We both knew that we didn't really want kids anymore. Cause like I said, I brought two from my previous, she had her two. So we had a nice, good blended family, four kids, nice and big. You know, the day I had my suicide attempt, that next morning, you know, I went and, and I went into treatment into a cell program. So when I got home from all of that and the first night, my wife and I really laid in bed and, and, um, and made love after the whole incident. It was the first time after making love. Lo and behold, Christina ends up getting uh, pregnant. And we say that we're playing irresponsible teenager with her birth control and that's, and that he's our retirement present. At that time, she had already had like kidney disease and high blood pressure. So even her nephrologist, her nephrologist was like, look, you're getting pregnant is not a good thing. It's going to be complicated. So we already knew there was going to be some complications. She was already high risk pregnancy. So she develops eclampsia. You want to so, go? Does he want to sit with you? You want to sit with part? me? You hungry? Yeah, I know. After, after this, we're going to go um, get some honeys and something to drink. He's got like five minutes, Phoenix. Yeah. But since we're talking about you, let's just yeah. bring you in the picture. Yeah. And then around January timeframe, um, her OBGYN um, told us that Phoenix stopped growing in her womb and uh she told us at that point the best thing for him was to let him develop up until like i think 36 or 37 weeks and then induce labor to get him out early because he'll have a better chance of survival outside the womb so we went another month just so he could make it to that we went to induce labor on march 22nd so about uh, two weeks before that, when her OBGYN said, okay, we have to induce labor, and we're thinking about doing it on this day, which was like a Wednesday or Thursday on the 20th, my wife asked her, is there any way we can do it on March 22nd, which is a Friday? And the doctor was like, yeah, I don't see no issue with that. I hadn't really put two and two together yet, and so I'm thinking March 22nd, March 22nd, whatever, right? So we go in and for anyone that doesn't know, when you induce a woman to go into labor, it's not an instantaneous thing. It takes usually 24 hours before it really starts working. And that's what happened with Christina. So uh, about 24 hours later, she starts going into labor with Phoenix. Well, by that time, he had already stopped growing in, in her womb. He was like at five pounds. He was born at five pounds, six ounces. Well, the machine started picking up that Phoenix's heart rate was slowing down and it looked like it was about to stop. So the doctor said, Christina, you have one last push. If not, we're basically slicing you open. We're pulling this baby out. So she had one last push and Phoenix came out, wasn't breathing right away because he had the cord wrapped around his neck twice. So he had it wrapped around his neck twice and it was tightening up, cutting off his air supply. And then he's called what in the medical field is called a true knot. And usually you only find those in autopsies. So what happens is Phoenix flipped around his, in mommy's belly so much that somehow his umbilical cord got tied in a knot like you tie your shoes. And so that was just getting tighter and tighter, cutting off the blood supply. And that's why his heart started slowing down and was uh, going out. Pulled him out. They removed the umbilical cord. I, I, cut, uh, I cut the cord and they undid that. And he gasped for air, started crying. We all cried, you know, with him. 
We still weren't sure the name. My dad had died of a sudden heart attack about three years before Phoenix was born. So my wife wanted to name, name him Luis Ernesto Fonseca III because I'm a junior. But we kept Luis as his middle name and then Phoenix was just his name because she was induced on March 22nd. He was born on March 23rd of 2019. So 16 years to the day of the Battle of al Nazir River, where we lost 18 men. My dad also died in March 10th of, of his heart attack. So when Phoenix was being born with all those complications, even though I'm a Buddhist, I do believe in energy. I honestly believe that uh, my 18 brothers that passed away 16 years ago were like, nope, he's gonna come into this world like Doc needs him. Me and my wife looked at each other and I said, it has to be Phoenix and she knew it was and that's why his name has so much meaning, not just being born 16 years to that day, but the complications that he had. And then when we talk about, you know, not just rise from the ashes, but another tagline that we use sometimes is bring light to the darkness. Uh, you know, a day that I, I use that day. It's not like I needed any day to, to justify why I was going to be a drunk that day, but definitely that day was like, if there's any day that I'm justified to be as drunk as I want to be is going to be this day. And he just changed that completely for me. It's a day that I attested with so much loss of life and so much darkness. Now I see the life and the beauty of that day. I definitely, as, as much as it still hurts that knowing that my 18 brothers passed away that day, knowing that they passed away to, to ensure that the rest of us came home to share their story. And that's why it's very important for us to share their story. It's not my story. The Battle of al Nazaria is not just mine. The Navy Cross is not just mine. That's why I said earlier, when I look at it, I, I just, I don't see why it's just a one person award that my Marines were just as brave, if not braver in my eyes than I was that day. And uh, especially the guys at the 18 men that, that laid their life down for us. And I will always say this to the day I die, that Navy Cross is truly, honestly theirs. I'm just the guy that they chose for me to wear for them. I've always worn it with the best of example and pride. No, I might have tarnished it a little bit, but I've always tried my best and I know my brothers know that. Whether you're in the service, where you're a frontline responder, whatever it is in your life, you know, and, and if you experience trauma, first and foremost, don't ever compare it to anyone else. Your trauma is your trauma. I always speak about the Battle of Al Nazaria. That was a hundred and seventy-five men that went into that firefight. How many different experiences came out of there? A hundred and seventy-five. You know, because each individual person processes their emotions and their traumas. But if you're processing them in an unhealthy manner, don't be ashamed of that. Have no shame in asking for help. There's plenty of us out here that suffer just the same. And there's plenty of us out here that have learned to live a life without having to suffer anymore. And we're here for each other. There's no shame. We're all human beings. We all deal with these emotions. Let's be here for each other. Let's care for each other. Let's do better than what we've been doing because I know as human beings, not just as Americans, but as human beings, but especially as Americans, we can do a lot better for humanity. And let's get there. I know we can. And I appreciate everyone's time. Everyone listened to this story and this message. And I wish everyone nothing but blessings. Thank you.